Welcome to Circulation on the Run, your weekly podcast summary and backstage pass to the journal and its editors. We're your co-hosts. I'm Dr. Carolyn Nam, Associate Editor from the National Heart Center and Duke National University of Singapore. And I'm Greg Hundley, Director of the Poly Heart Center at VCU Health in Richmond, Virginia. Greg, today's feature paper is a research letter, but oh my gosh, it is so interesting. It's about surgical explantation of transcatheter aortic bioprosthesis. So TAVRs, we know is on the rise, and so is the rise of surgical explantation cases, and we really need to understand it better. So hang on, we're coming to that, but maybe let's start with some other papers in the issue first, shall we? Let me go first. You go grab your coffee and listen, because we're going to talk about the efficacy of ertuglifloxin on heart failure-related events in patients with type 2 diabetes and established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease in the results of the Virtus CV trial. So, Carolyn, tell us a little bit about the Virtus CV trial. Sure. The primary results of the Verda CV trial have already been published. This cardiovascular safety trial was actually performed to satisfy the 2008 guidance from regulatory agencies for new antihyperglycemic agents. It found that patients with type 2 diabetes and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease randomized to ertuglifloxin achieved the primary objective of non-inferiority to placebo in time to first major adverse cardiovascular event or MACE, a composite endpoint of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, or non-fatal stroke. The first secondary outcome in the hierarchical testing sequence was superiority for the time to composite of cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization, which was not met. And therefore, formal hypothesis testing ended with this endpoint. Now, in today's paper, the authors led by Dr. Constantino from Karolinska Institute and Karolinska University Hospital in Stockholm, Sweden, present the results from pre-specified analyses of the effect of ertuglifloxin versus placebo on a series of heart failure-related outcomes from this Virtus CV trial. Ah, Carolyn. So, tell us, what were the results of this new study? Of more than 8,200 randomized patients, almost 24% had a history of heart failure, and almost 61% had a pre-trial ejection fraction available, including 959 patients with an ejection fraction less than or equal to 45%. While ertuglifloxin did not significantly reduce first heart failure hospitalization or cardiovascular death, it did reduce first and total hospitalization for heart failure events with a relative risk for first heart failure events being similarly beneficial, number one, in those with versus without a history of heart failure, and number two, in those with a history of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or preserved ejection fraction. However, the risk reduction tended to be greater for those with an ejection fraction less than or equal to 45%, although the test for interaction by ejection fraction was not significant. The effect of ertuglifloxin on risk for first heart failure hospitalization was consistent across most baseline subgroups, 
with a greater effect in three populations, including those with impaired kidney function and those taking diuretics. Now, this is discussed in an editorial by Drs. Fayez Anad and Martin Coey. You must pick it up and read it. That's great, Carolyn. What a fantastic another piece of information on the SGLT2 inhibitors. Well, my first paper comes to us from Dr. Peter Liu from the University of Ottawa Heart Institute and his colleagues. Carolyn, this article focuses on cardiac hypertrophy, which as you know, is a key biological response to injurious stresses such as pressure overload. Also, as you know, when cardiac hypertrophy is excessive, it can lead to heart failure. Innate immune activation by danger signals through intracellular pattern recognition receptors, such as nucleotide binding oligomerization domain-containing protein 1, or NOD1, and its adapter receptor interacting protein, RIP2, may play a major role in cardiac remodeling and progression to heart failure. These authors hypothesize that NOD1 and RIP2 are major contributors to cardiac hypertrophy, but may not be sufficient to fully express the phenotype alone. I like that, NOD1 and RIP2. So what did they find? So these authors found that innate immune NOD1 RIP2 signaling was a major contributor to cardiac remodeling following stress. This process was critically joined by and regulated through the mitochondrial danger signal protein adapter MAVs. The authors found that this novel complex coordinates remodeling, inflammatory response, and mitochondrial energy metabolism in stressed cardiomyocytes. Thus, NOD1-RIP2-MAV signaling complex may represent an attractive new therapeutic approach toward modulating LV hypertrophy-mediated heart failure. Very nice, Greg. Now, in the next paper, do you remember the Voyager PAD trial? Well, it was the trial that demonstrated superiority of rivaroxaban plus aspirin versus aspirin alone to reduce major cardiac and ischemic limb events following lower extremity revascularization. Now, clopidogrel is commonly used as a short-term adjunct to aspirin after endovascular revascularization. However, does clopidogrel modify the efficacy and safety of rivaroxaban in this setting? Well, that's the question that today's paper is addressing, and it is led by corresponding author Dr. Hiet from University of Colorado School of Medicine. So what did they find, Carolyn? Well, in the Voyager PAD trial, rivaroxaban plus aspirin reduced the risk of adverse cardiovascular and limb events with an early benefit for acute limb ischemia regardless of clopidogrel use. The safety of rivaroxaban was consistent regardless of clopidogrel use as well, but with a trend for more ISTH major bleeding with clopidogrel use more than 30 days than a shorter duration. These data support the addition of rivaroxaban to aspirin after lower extremity revascularization regardless of concomitant clopidogrel with a short course of less than 30 days associated with less bleeding. Very nice, Carolyn. Well, my next paper comes to us from Dr. Henson from the Jackson Laboratory for Genomic Medicine. 
Carolyn, this paper focuses on a particularly challenging heart failure-associated sarcomere gene, cardiac troponin T, that is encoded by TNNT2. Remember, Carolyn, this is a thin filament protein that functions in the tripartite troponin complex where calcium binds and triggers twitch force. Relative to other sarcomere genes, pathogenic TNNT2 variants are associated with poor prognosis as they carry an increased risk of sudden cardiac death that is disproportional to myocardial remodeling. The investigators used human pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes in cardiac microtissue and single-cell assays and functionally interrogated 51 TNNT2 variants, including 30 pathogenic, likely pathogenic variants, and 21 variants of unknown significance, called VUSs. They utilized RNA sequencing to determine the transcriptomic consequences of pathogenic TNNT2 variants. Wow, and so what were those consequences, Greg? They found that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy-associated TNNT2 variants increased cardiac microtissue contraction, while dilated cardiomyopathy-associated variants caused decreased contraction, both of which paralleled changes in myofilament calcium affinity. Transcriptomic changes, including NPBB levels directly correlated with sarcomere function and could be utilized to predict TNNT2 variant pathogenicity. So in summary, Carolyn, this research found that number one, inheritance of pathogenic TNNT2 variants is a leading cause of cardiomyopathy. And number two, the majority of TNNT2 variants identified in the human population are classified as those VUSs, or variants of unknown significance, which limits their clinical utility in genetic testing. As such, reclassification of TNNT2 variants would improve cardiomyopathy risk determination and treatment responses for individuals harboring these variants. Nice, thank you, Greg. Well, in this next paper, I think the title summarizes it all. Is there a sex gap in surviving an acute coronary syndrome or subsequent development of heart failure? Well, Dr. Justin Ezekowitz from Vigor Center, University of Alberta in Canada, and his colleagues used a large population-based cohort of more than 45,000 patients with MI between April 2002 and March 2016 to examine the incidence and geographic findings, treatment, and clinical outcomes of patients with the first-time MI. To elucidate the difference between sexes, a series of multivariable models were created to explore all MI and non-ST elevation MI versus ST elevation MI over time. So what did they find, Carolyn? While some attenuation of differences in clinical outcomes over time had occurred, women maintained a higher risk than men of dying or developing heart failure in the subsequent five years post both STEMI or non-STEMI, even after accounting for differences in angiographic findings, revascularization, and other confounders. Well, Carolyn, how about we get to some of the other articles in the issue. 
And I've got a really nice research letter from Professor Damien Bonnet entitled, Addition of Corticosteroids to Immune Globulins is Associated with Recovery of Cardiac Function in Multi-Inflammatory Syndrome in Children. There's also a research letter from Professor Peter Vandermeer entitled, Human Pluripotent Stem Cell-Derived Cardiomyocytes of Peripartum Cardiomyopathy Patients Reveal Aberrant Regulation in Lipid Metabolism. And Carolyn, finally, I have an ECG challenge entitled Wide QRS Complex Tachycardia in a Young Pregnant Woman. Is it SVT or VT? The age-old question from Dr. Gunna Seelan. Nice. Well, there's also an exchange of letters between Drs. Ross and Lupi regarding the article Identification and Characterization of Trajectories of Cardiac Allograph Vasculopathy After Heart Transplantation, a population-based study, and a beautiful perspective piece by Dr. Verma entitled Two Tales, One Story, and that is talking about the EMPA-reduced and DAPA-HF trials. A beautiful summary there. Let's get on now, though, to that feature discussion, shall we, Greg? You bet. Looking forward to it. Transcatheter aortic valve replacement, or TAVR, has indeed become an established alternative to surgical aortic valve replacement for patients with severe aortic stenosis. Now, while the TAVR usage has increased, so has surgical TAVR valve explantation. However, that's not been really well described, its clinical impact or outcomes well, until today's research letter in circulation, which represents the largest series of TAVR explants from a national database. And I'm so pleased to have with us the first and corresponding author, Dr. Shinichi Fukuhara, from University of Michigan to describe his study, as well as our associate editor, Dr. Tim Gartner from University of Pennsylvania. So welcome, gentlemen. Shinichi, if you don't mind, for non-interventionists and non-surgeons like myself, why would you need to explant TAVR in the first place? Maybe you could start with that and then tell us about your study. First of all, thank you so much for the kind invitation. It's a great honor to be with you and Dr. Gardner. That's a very good question and a very timely question, actually. When we started implanting TAVR valves, probably about nine years ago or so, that was when the TAVR valve was FDA approved. We were not thinking about second uh, TAVA procedure after the initial TAVA valve fails. And then as the time goes on, we started recognizing, you know, some patients TAVA valve started failing and these failure patterns can be paravalvular leak, can be structural valve degeneration, can be endocarditis. So not all patients with a failing TAVA valve can be treated with a second TAVA valve procedure and the most common driving factor, at least in my program at the University of Michigan, is unsuitable anatomy for a second TAVR valve. And the most common anatomy pattern is the risk of a coronary artery obstruction by the second TAVR valve. These are the common scenarios where patients need a TAVR valve explantation scenarios. 
Thank you so much for that as a background. And, you know, as you nicely set up in your paper, as we do more TAVR, I mean, obviously there are going to be more situations like this, right? So please tell us what you found. First of all, what we found from this project, first, surgical TAVR explant procedure is not as simple as people thought it would be. I remember back in 2014, 2015, when I was still a trainee, people were talking about which is better, Taver, Saver, Taver, or Saver, Taver, Saver. However, based on what we are just starting to see, Taver, Saver sequence may not be a good option for younger people based on the present study data. So the fact that more than 50% of patients require the major Simultaneous procedures such as aortic repair and the mitral procedures is something TAVA implanters in our community should be more aware. I think it's very important for Sanichi to tell us to emphasize the mortality rate that you saw with these SABRs following TAVR, because that's really, I think, the sobering information here. This is not comparable to doing a redo aortic valve or a redo SABR. So just tell us about that, Sanichi. First of all, these STS database, so we have a STS predicted risk of mortality, which is available for patients undergoing isolated SABA procedure. And then based on the even isolated SABA procedure, the OE ratio observed to expected mortality ratio was actually higher than 1.5 for isolated SABA procedure in patients requiring TAVR explant. More importantly, patients who are requiring TAVR explant SABR as well as a concomitant cardiac procedure are demonstrating almost close to 20% mortality rate, which is to me very striking after we analyze the data set. And this is something our community, you know, the TAVA implanters in our community should keep in mind. Yeah, so obviously, not only is the surgery, the removal of the TAVA device and replacement with a surgical valve, not only is that complex anatomically and technically, but the associated mortality seen in this series of patients that they reported is higher than expected and actually quite high in terms of absolute operative or hospital mortality. I take this important research letter as a sort of a a warning message to all of us, in particular, the cardiology community, to realize that once a TAVR valve is placed, it is more difficult and riskier to remove that and replace it with a surgical aortic valve replacement if for some reason, such as endocarditis or valve failure or whatever comes to play. And obviously, as Sanichi has already said, when you're looking at a younger patient, patient under 60, for example, who needs an aortic valve procedure, you need to keep in mind whether, as he said earlier, it might be safer to do a SAVR first. And then if there's another procedure required that could be because of valve failure, a TAVR could be done rather than just assuming that the TAVR is going to be there and that it can be easily replaced or taken care of. At any rate, I think that's the very important point of this paper. 
and I think this is really the first report. And not only, by the way, does it show that this is happening, but in the most recent year of the of your report, Sunichi, how many SAVRs after TAVR were reported? Number of cases? So the 2018, the last year of this study period, was actually the highest, obviously, and it was uh, close to 300 cases reported. And then the number of cases are steeply increasing, as I uh, demonstrated in the figure one in the paper. So that really emphasizes, obviously, TAVR volume is increasing. TAVR is now being placed in younger patients who have a perhaps a greater chance of requiring a second procedure. And if it has to be explantation of the TAVR because of the complexity and the inability to use another TAVR to fix the valve, the technical challenges and the operative risks are much higher. Well, I just think that this is a warning call that we have to be realistic about the secondary requirements for patients that have TAVR. And we don't yet even have much more than a 10-year experience with TAVRs, and we're seeing an increasing number of patients just in the STS database who are having to come back for TAVR explant. And it's a difficult, challenging procedure. Uh, One point that Sunichi made in his article is that this technical challenge of TAVR explant may be something patients with requiring this procedure may need to be referred to surgeons and hospitals with high aortic surgery volume. This is not necessarily a procedure that you know, a, a surgeon can get experienced with and, and comfortable with doing two or three a year. So that's another bit of the message here. Thanks, Tim. And Shinichi, what would be your take-home message to the clinical community listening in? Thank you so much. Yeah, this is a little bit redundant statement, but I think that another important message from this paper is that these low-risk younger patients choosing to have a TAVR procedure at the initial valve therapy should be informed of the future procedure risk of a TAVR explant, mm-hmm. which frequently requires mobile device explanting and the possible unplanned concurrent procedures. And for these reasons, careful assessment of aortic root anatomy and the feasibility of a repeat TAVR procedure should be part of the initial TAVR workup if we decide to proceed with TAVR for younger patients. And then therefore, heart team approach remains extremely important in the TAVR practice. That's my take home message. And I'd like to reinforce that. This is, as we know, the heart team concept has been so important in providing optimal care for patients with the aortic valve disease. And this is a reminder of part of the discussion that should be happening at the heart team level. Thank you so much. Clear take-home messages that you got right here on Circulation on the Run. This program is copyright the American Heart Association 2020.